Good morning, y'all. So uh, this morning is sort of a, a transition, which is nice. Uh, we're out of why worry, we're before blank slate, which means I just get to talk about whatever I want to. Um, so I'm going to start with a question. Uh, when I ask the question, what is your worth? What is your value? How do you answer? So, and I, I will note, thank you so much, Jeremy. I sent him slides probably, oh, sometime less than 24 hours ago, and they still somehow magically appeared. This is good. Um, so if we can give a round of applause to Jeremy, who probably did this on the plane. Um, that's great. It'll be much more entertaining than just having to look at me. Now, when we think about this answer, some of us may think about our net worth calculated in terms of money value. Most of us with student loans will do that calculation and likely end up in the negative. Or maybe when we think about what we're worth or what is our value, we think about the things that we own, right? So here we have uh, one of my favorite little comic strips actually had this recently, and I thought this was very indicative, right? What's up with all that flashy jewelry? It's my bling. It makes me important, right? So maybe that's we associate with the little fox and decide that's how we determine value. Uh, for others, it might be our position or our career, what we would think about in terms of our success as our worth. Perhaps it's your looks, your weight, your number of friends. More recently, actually, I heard that we can even be judged, we can even be valued on our follower-to-following ratio on things like Instagram or Twitter. So what I have been told is that if you follow more people than follow you, apparently you are no longer cool. Some of you are calculating that ratio right now. This is church, you can be honest. I did a quick Google search. Beyonce, at least at some point, had 177,605,573 followers. I'm sure that's more now, and I'm sure some of you could tell me that exact number. Her ratio is probably pretty good. Mine is better. See, I follow zero people, and I am followed by zero people. So my ratio is undefined, or some would argue infinity. <laughs> now, I know there's at least one math person in here that wants to debate about zero divided by zero, which apparently is a very highly contested thing, and we can talk about that afterwards. But my point is broader. When we derive our worth from something external, it can always fail and it will never be enough. But the power of the gospel is that each of us has inherent worth because we are children of God. In fact, this is ingrained from the very beginning of the story of God. When we turn to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 we are told that God said, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, God created them. From the very beginning of the story of God, we are told that we have inherent worth. And if being made in God's image was not enough to prove that we have value endowed by our creator, then we are told that God's son was sent to die for our sins. In fact, if you happen to come from a family where you were raised in the church, or maybe even if you weren't, likely one of the first verses you heard 
or were required to memorize for some Bible quiz was John 3.16. It reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Throughout the New Testament letters, we are reminded that we didn't have to do anything, that we were inherently worth it to God. In Roman, Paul reminds us that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to earn or demonstrate value before Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. He did it because of the inherent worth that God has endowed us with. In his letter to Ephesians, Paul reminds his audience that it's by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. See, the story of the Bible is a story of our inherent value in God, not because of ourselves and frankly often in spite of ourselves. Now, two quick caveats before we talk about why this is important. Now, worth is used often in the Bible, and sometimes, particularly in the Psalms and other passages, it's used in a comparative sense, right? It's this idea that we are not worthy of God. This is true. We independently cannot earn grace, and we independently cannot be God. But see, this, this was never the design, and that's not the sermon I'm trying to give. That's a whole nother conversation. Neither will this sermon uh, try and answer the statement, well, if you're telling me I have worth and am loved by God no matter what, then I can do anything, right? right? Paul provided a quick answer to this in 1 Corinthians 6.12 when he says, you say I have the right to do anything, but I say not everything is beneficial. Right? That also is a whole nother sermon that we can get to. But today, I felt compelled to focus on worth, on value as a concept in and of itself. And while it's not part of Pastor Kevin's series on worry, I actually think it's a good follow-up. Because often, when we worry, right, when we focus on the tomorrow that Pastor Kevin was talking about, it's because we don't have confidence in our worth today. We think that there's something we have to do tomorrow in order to earn grace. We think that somehow that value or that worth we're told we have can disappear. Right? So worry comes from not understanding the inherent value that we have, that we're endowed with. And it honestly seems that every other conversation I have with someone in church is questioning the very premise I'm asserting, that every person has inherent value, that that value is solely derived from our Creator and nothing, I mean nothing, you say or do can remove that inherent value of God. And nothing anyone else says to you or does to you can remove that value. I'll say that again. Every person has inherent value that is solely derived from your creator. And nothing you do or say and nothing others do to you or say to you can remove that inherent value to God. Said simply, worth is found in God nowhere else. I want to start with a story from the Gospel of Mark. Some of you may be familiar with it. It reads, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? His disciples said, you see the people crowding against you, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at her feet and told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This might seem like an odd passage to talk about when we're talking about inherent worth. But I believe that Jesus' greatest testament was his actions. The way he treats others most powerfully reveals to us God's promise. Understanding the cultural context here helps us better understand my point. See, this woman was continually bleeding. It's not totally clear exactly what was wrong with her. You can read many articles about people trying to guess at what it was. But either way, because of her continual bleeding, this woman would have been, continue, would have been regarded in Jewish law as nidah, which means basically she was considered a perpetually menstruating woman, which means she was ceremonially unclean. She was unclean for 12 whole years. And because of that constant bleeding, this woman likely lived in a continual state of uncleanness, which brought upon her social and religious isolation. Yet this woman understood that society did not dictate her worth. Instead, she just needed to touch Jesus and be healed. There are a few important things here that I want to focus on. First, it's important her position in society. Right? Already contextually, as a woman who was likely not married because of her ailment, she had a lower position in society. When you add on to that, her condition, which meant she was ceremonially unclean and isolated, she was an outsider, considered to be without value. Second, Jesus cared enough to stop. See, the disciples were seemingly frustrated with Jesus here. And you could understand it, right? The disciples are seeing this huge crowd of people around, and Jesus says, who touched me? And I'm sure in the disciples' mind, they're like, there's like hundreds and thousands of people here, Jesus. We don't know who touched you. Lots of people touched you, right? Move on. They're not important. But to Jesus, he wanted to know. He needed to know. And he wanted to acknowledge this individual because this individual had worth. Right? Jesus could have kept walking knowing that she had been healed. Could have just left her be. But the acknowledgement of this woman is important in the story. Third, when Jesus acknowledges her, Jesus calls her daughter. He includes her in his family. A person that would be seen as nothing to society was everything to Jesus in that moment. See, this story is much more than another miracle to attribute to Jesus. It is a testament to the expansiveness of who God endows with value. She, too, is made in the image of God, and God, incarnate in Jesus, takes the time to stop and acknowledge that in that moment, demonstrating to everyone who's watching the inherent value she has. We, too, are made in the image of God. Each and every one of us reflect God's image to the world. 
And as the image of God, we have inherent value. Now, some of you are probably sitting here saying, great, heard this one a hundred times, super easy. But maybe others are more like me. If I'm honest with you, if I were to define and identify the area that is the hardest thing for me to accept about God, it's that I have value in God's eyes. It's actually always been very easy for me to see value in others. No matter who the person is, I have for a long time understood that God sees value in that person. But even acknowledging and finding it easy to see that God sees value in others, much of my younger years, while intellectually understanding that God was big enough to deal with even me, emotionally I just couldn't get there. See, I, I still felt that despite all that is in the Bible, despite me seeing God at work in my life, and despite all the Sunday school lessons I endured, somehow I was too broken for God's love. I could in one breath acknowledge that Christ died for everyone, regardless of their past, present, or future, and yet think I somehow fell outside of that grace. That God's love extended so far, his grace abounded so infinitely, that no one was outside of his reach. And that if God was who he claimed to be, God had to be big enough for anyone except me. See, I, I was somehow too broken, too lost, too burdensome, too valueless, even for God. And that internal voice inside of me dictated that I somehow needed to prove my worth to God. I needed to be the best Christian, to say the right things, to have the right job, to go to the right schools, to give up and sacrifice the right things, to be the right identity. Maybe then I could squeak by in the grace of God. And then I realized something. In doing this, I was doubting God's promise. See, I, I framed this about me. I had imposed on me the need to gain value somehow to be worthy of God. But what I was really saying is that I didn't trust God's promise enough to accept that I had inherent value he endowed me with. When I say I don't have worth, I'm saying I don't trust God's promise for me. The funny thing is, when I had realized this, I felt a little bit worse. In my mind, I couldn't help saying, oh no, I can't even do worthless correctly. <laughs> but this moment fundamentally changed my relationship with my creator. My relationship with God changed from one that was about what I could do to prove value to how I can abide in the inherent value that God has given me. That took and honestly continues to take work to undo all the ways I was taught that I did not have value. I had to stop playing the game because the reality is, just like the Instagram popularity game, God's story tells us that the only way to win the game is to never play it in the first place because our worth, before we even engage, is infinite to God or more accurate mathematically, cannot be defined or quantified despite the brightest people making every effort to do so. Imagine what your life would look like if you lived it out believing that you had inherent value. How can that change the way you look at work, at position, 
at friendships, at romantic relationships? How does that change how you think about the vast identities that you hold? What would the world look like if each of us recognized that we were part of the complex, multifaceted image of God? Now, for some of you, the focus on truly accepting that you are inherently valuable will be enough for the week. Others, you might already be there. So part two is, is for you. See, if we agree that every individual has inherent worth because they're a child of God, that affects how we treat others. Think about it. If every time you had a negative thought about someone, you stopped and realized that God sees them as having inherent worth, how would that change your perspective? We are called to interact with others in a way that recognizes that inherent worth. Now, there are many ways that we can think of applying this to our daily walk, and we likely do. It's probably easier to apply in things like friendships, church friends, maybe workplaces, marriages. But there are two aspects of this calling that I want to focus on, two that I think are particularly challenging for different reasons. First, I want to turn to Matthew 25. Now, we're going to read just part of this, but in Matthew 25, we read Jesus talking about the least of these. For context, this is pulled from a passage often referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. We're focusing on the sheep part. And it's another example of Jesus' focusing on those who are often outside of external worth, the least of these. So the Lord says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous answered him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The Lord replied, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did also for me. See, if we recognize the inherent value in someone because of their humanity, that has deep implications on our everyday interactions. Jesus, in his ministry, constantly pointed his followers to people on the margins, the hungry, the stranger, the ill, the incarcerated. These were the people he focused on. Jesus was reminding us through his own life and ministry that we are called to see the inherent value in everyone, not just in the people it's easy to do. So, so what would it mean to stop, to acknowledge their inherent value, and to treat someone accordingly? How does this change our interactions with people who may be without shelter? How does it change our interactions with people on the metro or on the bus, even before we've had our coffee? How does this impact how we spend our time, how we think about people who have been previously incarcerated or are currently incarcerated? And how does this impact our view? Now, 
often ignoring the others around us, is a sin of avoidance. We don't necessarily want to deal with it because it's hard. We may not even know how to deal with it, so it's easier just to not deal with it at all. It also sometimes I think is a sin of idolization of comfort, right? To step outside of what we know, of where we're at, requires us to become uncomfortable. And frankly, sometimes just life is too busy to do that. But we are called to do that. And if we really believe that every individual has an inherent value endowed by God, then we have to make ourselves uncomfortable. We have to stop avoiding because that's the only way we can recognize that inherent value that we're called to recognize. Now, while ignoring the others around us is often a sin of avoidance and idolization of comfort, how we treat those we disagree with is more often a sin of anger and pride. This is the second group of people I want to wrestle with today. People who are jerks. People who we disagree with, even on the most fundamental terms. This seems all the more important in today's climate when it appears that civility is gone and dialogue is dead. Where dialogue has turned to mudslinging and degradation of personhood rather than exchanges of ideas. And I want to start with a story in the Bible about the biggest jerk of them all, Paul. Judas was a close second. See, yeah, you're surprised. But the Bible is full of people that can hurt Jesus and his followers. And yet Jesus continues to see their worth. He calls us to see past their sins and recognize their value. You may be familiar with a passage in Luke that calls us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate you. But Jesus' life shows us what that's like in action. I want to read the story of Paul, gentle Paul, writer of the majority of the New Testament Paul, theologian of grace and love Paul, murderer Paul, leader of genocide Paul. Right? Same Paul. Now, we see in chapter 9 of Acts the story of Paul, then called Saul, conversion. But before that, we know Paul as a Pharisee, the same people that sought out the death of Jesus. And in fact, in chapter 8, we're introduced to Paul, where he was at the martyring of Stephen and was consenting to Stephen's death. And after that, we are told that Paul made havoc of the church, entering every house and every room and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Chapter 9 continues to tell us about Paul. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, following Jesus, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul went to ask permission to go seek out Christians and condemn them. We're going to pause here. Right? If Jesus had a lot of reasons to not like Paul. Paul is bringing about the death and incarceration of his followers with extreme effectiveness and a zealousness that is frankly repulsive. If anyone deserved to be struck down by lightning, if anyone was outside or without value, I feel like Paul should have been a good candidate. 
But when we continue to read, we, talk, we read about Saul's journey. And he journeyed and came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then Jesus, or then Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So this is the part of the story that our internal sense of justice says, lightning bolt must come here, right? Because it would be deserved. But instead, we continue to read and we see again a radical demonstration of mercy. Likely many of us are familiar with the Paul on the other side of grace, the one who expands the church, the one who writes beautifully of the gospel and its promises, who ultimately dies for his faith. See, even when Paul was Saul, God had endowed him with inherent worth. Now, this sometimes is the hardest group to acknowledge, and part of it is our innate sense of justice, of, of fairness. If they're not acting like Jesus, why should we? Now, again, this is more complex than I have time for, but I want to at least acknowledge. I'm not saying we're called to put ourselves in situations where we're going to be harmed. I'm also not making the claim that as image bearers of God, all our actions are of God or good. That's free will and an entirely other sermon as well. But what I am saying is this. The Paul in your life has value, has inherent worth to God. And if you're the Paul in someone's life, you have value, inherent worth to God. And I believe it's God's sincerest hope that whoever the Paul is, maybe we're all Pauls to someone, that that inherent worth is seen. And it's incumbent on us to recognize no matter how evil, how hurtful, how terrible any person is, they have inherent value and our actions should reflect that. No life is valueless to God. No one is forever lost. So what does the gospel call us to then? Frankly, it probably calls us to a lot more than we're willing to do. But at the very least, it calls us to acknowledge every person's inherent value, including our own, and to act accordingly. This doesn't mean that one should stop activism or stop speaking their mind, or stop speaking truth to power, or truth at all. It does mean that we need to recognize the humanity, the value in everyone, even when that person refuses to return the courtesy. See, Jesus called us in Luke to love our enemy, and specifically said that loving those who are easy to love isn't really anything special. Loving beyond is what makes us followers of Jesus, Seeking and acknowledging the inherent worth in every person is what makes us followers of Jesus. The message today is a simple one, one that many of you have likely heard before. Yet, often people, including myself, need to be reminded of this simple message because the world we live in works so hard to unteach it. It is the basic good news of the Bible, God's story of humanity. You have inherent value. It does not need to be earned, and it cannot be lost. Each of us is so valuable that God came to earth so that he could live, so that he could die for you and be resurrected. Once we believe that fundamental truth, 
then we must live our lives in accordance with it. Second, others have inherent value. It does not need to be earned, and it cannot be lost. We are also called to live our lives in accordance with that truth. Let us pray. God, we stand here all in different places, all in different understandings. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet recognized their own inherent value in you, Lord, that they can see that, see that to be true. That, Lord, I pray that as we seek out external validation, as we seek out our value from other things that are of this world, Lord, other things that can fall away, that instead we are reminded that our value is secure, Lord, that we have nothing that we can do to lose it, that we have to do nothing to earn it, but that you have created us, endowed us with inherent worth. Lord, we then pray that you challenge our hearts to see that in others. Lord, I pray that as we leave this church, that when we look around on the streets, when we walk into work on Tuesday or Monday, Lord, that we see each person that we interact with as someone who is inherently valued by you and that you call us to act in accordance. We pray these things in your loving name. Amen.